2015 Rome Prize recipient and 2014 Pulitzer Prize finalist, Brooklyn-based composer Christopher Cerrone is a force of nature on today's contemporary new music scene. His evocative and stunningly beautiful works have been premiered by the Calder Quartet, the Los Angeles Philharmonic, and the Los Angeles Chamber Orchestra. He has recently written a violin concerto for violinist Jennifer Coe and the Detroit Symphony Orchestra with Leonard Slatkin. I sat down with Chris while he was in L.A. working with the conductorless chamber orchestra Kaleidoscope for the West Coast premiere of his string orchestra piece, High Windows. So, Chris, welcome to Classical Chop Studio. It's so great to have you. Thank you. So, you're in town for a, um, is it a West Coast premiere? It is a West Coast premiere. West Coast premiere of um, High Windows, correct? Yes, and this is going to be done by Kaleidoscope, a conductorless chamber orchestra. So tell us a little bit about that. Uh, it is, um, High Windows was written, it's a, it's a little bit of an older piece now. I was like listening to it last night thinking, oh, this is such a, I was such a different person when I wrote this. Uh, but it's a piece for a string orchestra. It was originally commissioned by a group in Brooklyn called the String Orchestra of Brooklyn. And there was um, a uh, string quintet called the To My String Quintet. And they were the co-commissioners of the piece. So the idea was to write a concerto grosso because the group is a volunteer orchestra and made up of people of very varying levels of ability. And the, or- the quintet is super top-notch. So it's just sort of, you know, the idea to give me a chance to focus on a sort of, you know, and it wound up becoming basically a concerto grosso because it's like, you know, you have the ripiano and the, um, the solos. Exactly. Right. Well, that's so, interesting because I listened to that on YouTube, and I didn't realize that the ensemble, the the string orchestra, was mixed level. Mm-hmm. Wow! Well, you did an amazing job of. Well, you know, there's some like very strategic things one yeah, can do. I noticed. I, uh, you know, I was I was I was partnered to a string player for a long time, so I uh, I one of the side benefits was learning what's hard and what's not hard for any. I mean, I feel like you know, if I could like set young composers out on a dating path, it's like. Data singer, data pianist, data com- yeah, data string player, <laughs> so that you know you can sort of extra slowly become an expert on all the instruments through a series of romantic failures. Love that. Uh, so wait, you dated the string player, but you never played strings yourself. I, I, you know, I actually am trained as a bass player. Um, okay, not super well, but uh, you know, I, I when I became a, decided to become a composer in high school, I was like, oh, I have to play in an orchestra somehow, and I had been an electric guitar player and. Then an electric bass player, and uh, you know, so I was like, oh, the closest thing I could possibly learn right now is to learn the double bass. So I had a really intense summer where the chair of my high school music program gave me daily lessons uh, on the double bass in exchange for teaching in his program. So, oh, fantastic! Yeah, so then I joined the orchestra in high school. So I, you know, I did have a sense of what it's like to be in a string orchestra. But um, for example, High Windows uses a tremendous amount of harmonics and natural harmonics, and uh, especially in the orchestra part, and the side part of you know the side benefit of harmonics is that they're very in tune because you can't change the intonation at all. So obviously, the greatest challenge for a large group of volunteer string players is intonation, and so that kind of builds in a lot of core intonation issues naturally. So yeah, the the, the large group is playing a lot of harmonics, whereas the solo group is playing more difficult soloistic parts. No, it's a beautiful piece. Thank you. Um, what I notice a lot about your uh, your work is atmosphere, and that piece especially mm. atmosphere, timbre, articulation. Mm-hmm. So, um, can you discuss that a little bit and how that informs this piece? Um, yeah. Well, you know, the other thing about it, it was it was originally commissioned to be in, played in this church in Brooklyn called St. Anne's Church, which is you know the original St. Anne's Warehouse, actually, but. Um, it's, and uh, it's a very resonant church, so I, I wanted to say resonance was the other one. Yeah, and resonance is like kind of a hallmark of my work in one way or another, always creating a sense of resonance. So I had this beautiful church, you know, and I sort of with a great natural reverb, which um, we're very fortunate with Kaleidoscope that apparently both of these concerts are going to be done in. There are in church. They are in churches. One's in a church, and one's in a city theater, but it's an old theater that has apparently very wet acoustic. You know, I ran into Don Crockett yesterday, who also has a piece in the concert, and he's like, oh, you know, these places are so wet. And I'm like, great. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, the kind of like, you know, the natural, these ringing harmonics, you know, that already ring off the instruments kind of ring into the room. And so that was like sort of the initial impulse for the piece. And, um, but yeah, I think in all of my work, uh, you know, I, I think affect plays, like, you know, I, to me, um, sort of one of the hallmarks of what I try to do is to blend sonic phenomena with affect so you know the idea of like some kind of natural occurring acoustic phenomenon and having being able to tie it into some sort of emotional component so you know um 
Yeah, a big thing in my work is sort of resonance and ringing and creating, at- and then, yeah, like atmosphere, as you say, and to me, the ability to kind of create that and work with that as a, and manipulate it as a composer is a huge part of what I do. Right. Well, what, from what I listened to, your music was really about this dialogue between these parameters. Right? Yeah, I think Each so. Each piece kind of gives you a different kind of visual in, or not visual. <laughs> yeah, a, a reference point. No, a like, reference point in. But the way you combine them, dialogue with them, and um, kind of draw our attention as a listener to them is is really fascinating. And um, for me, your work is so balanced in this kind of like head, heart, mind situation. Mm-hmm. So nothing's gimmicky. Everything is really working towards this kind of cohesive whole. And it's well, it's really rewarding, fantastic. Well, thank you. Yeah, so I remember years ago I had this concert in Italy, and this guy walks up to me. He's like, the first piece was like, uh, you know, you had the uh, heart, and the second piece was like the head, and I, your piece had both. It was wonderful. See, there you go. <laughs> So, um, how important is audience feedback to you? Let's go on. That. <laughs> um, uh, you know, uh, I, I I would feel like I'd be lying if I was writing music. Then I would be. I, I I don't think I'd be happy writing music that no one cared about. It, you know, in fact, I think it's kind of a weird pose that artists are sort of expected to be on, where they're like, "Oh, I never think about the audience. I was just thinking about myself." It's like, well, I'm not thinking about an audience. I'm just writing the music. That I would want to hear, but you know, I think that there's a lot of versions of that, and I, I think there's, I think, I think there's a motivation for artists to say things like that, and I, I'm, I'm, you know, I, 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 there's probably nothing more satisfying than making something that I like and also an audience loves, you know, I, I, I mean, who wouldn't like that, you know? Right, of course. Do you think there that the days of provoking the audience with something controversial or I think that- purposefully avant-garde is? I think art can function in a lot of different ways. And I would say that I enjoy work that, you know, I, I can enjoy work that can be provocative. I can enjoy work that's not pro- I, 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 don't, I don't think that if art played one role, it would be very satisfying. Like, if all art was palliative, if all art was provocative, I don't, I don't, I don't, I think it's about an artist speaking honestly and speaking in their own voice. And right. if that artist's job is to provoke, then they should provoke. They should provoke, right. That's, I like that. I think it's more the idea of there being a like a de facto position, which is the the, the tiresome thing. The what? Like the idea that an artist has to play a role, an artist has right. to be provocateur, an artist has to be, you know. Well, then this is kind of like the artist drinking their own Kool Aid. Mm. Yeah, right. or just being in a closed circuit, you know. Right. That's interesting. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the conductorless chamber orchestra, as far as. Uh, have you had a rehearsal yet? With I did. Sport? Okay. Yeah, I said last night. I went to. How did it go? It was fine. It was great. You know, there, it's it's you know I, I will say that uh, it's sort of nice that in that you know the, they're like you're a member of the orchestra right now, so just speak up whenever you want to speak up. And you know, there's a you know as <laughs> as I'm sure you're aware, as a member of orchestras, the 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 protocol with every orchestra can be very different. You know, it can be like maestro. Please, Maestro, may I make a comment? And he'd be like, "No, <laughs> you may you may make three comments to the Maestro later." And that so the the vibe was, you know, I, I, and I think that that's probably a waning phenomenon. I can't imagine that going on much longer. You know, the brilliant Maestro, the who, brilliant Maestro, right? Who can't be interrupted. Um, <laughs> and I've been very lucky for the most part that almost all the conductors I've worked with of all generations have been not like that at all. But you know. You know, with Kaleidoscope, the vibe is great because it's just sort of like, okay, let's do this now. Let's do this. And, you know, I, I know how to put my works together. So, um, you know, just experience of seeing what's challenging, you know, having, you know, put together high windows with like five or six groups at this point. Like, it's very clear. Like, I know where the challenges are. And I think they zeroed on them already. But, you know, as a, as a conductorless group, they don't have a person doing the listening, really. Everyone's involved. So I can sort of just zoom out and be like, okay, now that you guys have all got the notes, which you're all focused on, like, let's shape this. Are there works of yours that you would definitely not recommend conductorless. Mm, definitely. I mean, it's interesting because there's even, even in high windows, I mean, there's sort of like all these conductor indications, like, you know, this is where things change. So it's definitely being adapted. Uh, I think it's useful to have a, con- it's, it's, it's interesting because like, you know, a lot of, you know, I had a concert with the Pittsburgh New Music Ensemble last year and they did all my works and a lot of the works were written to be conducted and their artistic director, Kevin No, who was a good friend of mine, is a conductor, is a great conductor, and he's like, I am not conducting this concert. We don't need it. You know, we don't need to conduct this concert. And, uh, you know, he was at the, all the rehearsals, but they just, you know, even pieces that were very much designed, uh, you know, one piece had a click track for the conductor. And then so it was like one player just wore it and she cued everyone. And 
And yeah. It worked. Yeah, it was no, fun. I saw some of those video- a good friend of mine who's a clarinetist in that group. Oh, Eric. Eric, yeah. Oh, I love Eric. <laughs> so I watched He's like an LA videos. person too, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. oh he was great. Se- <laughs> he's he's up in Seattle now, but yeah. Yeah. Um, a lot of your work I've noticed um, integrates visual, a visual component. Can you talk a little bit about that? Especially, uh, I'm thinking of Memory Palace. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd, I'd say that my work generally involves uh, interdisciplinary elements more than literal. Like, not. I mean, there's often literary elements. There's often visual elements, and I think it's just part of my desire to make a, a practice that is interconnected. And I think that's the kind of work. That is broadly interesting in this age. I mean, you know, like I, I did not grow up within the cult of classical music, and therefore, I find its purity and it's it's sort of like bizarre Teutonic desire to like have absolute. Like I remember, like there was always this kind of like low key um, insistence that like the greatest music was like you know there was program music and then there was absolute music and secretly the absolute music was better. So wait, what was the cult that you grew up in? Uh, I grew up the cult of uh, <laughs> like suburban capitalism. Amazing. I grew up in Long Island, which is sort of the ultimate uh, suburb, uh, the original suburb. And yeah, no, I, I, my, my my parents are lovely people, and but not particularly artistically inclined. And uh, which can be great, what right? Would also be a gift. I think it can be a gift in that you know I, I think it would be. I can't imagine what classical music would mean to someone if they grew up inside of it. You know, I saw my friend David Kaplan the other day, a pianist who's just a fabulous pianist who teaches at UCLA. But you know, his like dad is a classical musician, his mom's a music teacher, and uh, so you know, the and his brothers are classical. So it's just a totally different relationship. In fact, I gave some lecture where I was talking about how I don't know what that would be like, and he was in the audience, and he's like, "You were talking about me, weren't you?" <laughs> uh, but it, I think it is a very different relationship, and uh, the, centri- the centrifugality of repertoire, I think, is particularly uh, something that I've never had to deal with. I'm like, I'm just going to pick and choose whatever I like, and I don't, you know, I feel no need to pretend that I care more about Brahms than I do. Right. Uh, yeah. And so, so then tell me a little bit about your early years. Uh, sure. Yeah. I mean, I grew up uh, in you know very classic suburban middle-class family. My dad is, a, is an Italian immigrant and my mother's Italian-American. So that part of the culture, every 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 stereotype you can imagine from the food to the emotionality to the, <laughs> uh, you know, culture. You know, I, I think that, you know, the, my dad is a great opera lover. So that was probably my first introduction to classical music. And um, uh, there was this sort of enormous classical collection of LPs in my house. So I sort of like when I decided that I wanted it to be my thing, you know, it was just all sitting it there. It was sitting there. Yeah, yeah, which was great. Uh and I was very lucky. But, you know, I, I grew up, you know, playing piano because we had, you know, we had a piano in our house. And I apparently as a child was just like drawn to it obsessively. And there's like some other tale of me as a two-year-old, like with a record player where I would just like sit there with like list- listening to the same Lionel Richie record over and over and over again for like days. And <laughs> so clearly there was like a very intense infatuation for music from a young age. And I grew up playing, cla- you know, classical piano because uh, I sort of demanded lessons. And then I learned electric guitar and played in bands and I played jazz and I played in... Uh, you know, eventually orchestra. And so there was, you know, my, my childhood was very musical and I was lucky to have a bunch of people who really encouraged me. And, and then in high school, the bass. In, the, in high school, the bass. And I had a really wonderful... Uh, God, I hope he's not listening to this because I had this uh, <laughs> really amazing uh, music teacher who... Th- this is like actually kind of heartbreaking in the 2018 sort of sense is that... Um, he was such an encouraging guy. He's a jazz musician, pianist, and was my music theory teacher. Really, honestly, the reason I became a composer is probably because he encouraged me so much. And uh, now he is like this vitriolic Trump supporter, and I see him on Facebook. Oh. And it's like, it's one of the reasons I can't go on Facebook because I can't see, like, it's, and it's not even like some kind of like centrist Republican. It no, is like, it's like locker up, like extreme, oh. like. Oof. And I'm just like, oh, God. So that's one of the many reasons social media is terrible is you do not need to know the politics of your mentors. One of the many reasons. Uh, Well, how else have you seen politics affect the classical music world? I think everything is sort of, it feels like it's suddenly been politicized and everything's in the lens of politics right now, which is like interesting because I'm like looking forward to like (laughs) looking back on this moment and being like, well, I'm either looking forward to looking back on this moment and being like, oh, that was the beginning of the end, or alternately being like, wow, a lot of people made a lot of really bad art about Donald Trump. And Right. I'm not, I mean, I, I, I think the notion of, like, politics and art is, like, a really, I mean, there are people who we were just talking about, my friend Ted Hearn, who's, like, a great composer who's very politically engaged. I feel sort of the, I don't, I, I feel like the opposite in that I, I think that the personal is political, and I think that 
the function of art within society can be political, but for me, it's about, uh, you know, creating a, a, a you know, a, a more complicated, more complex, more um, empathic person. And to me, that is like a very political gesture. The, the politics of feeling something is actually like, you know, because I, I feel somehow th- at the core of sort of, a, you know, Trumpist philosophy is the idea of someone who like can't uh, actually feel anything or doesn't want to let themselves feel anything. And if you can't feel anything, you, and if you don't know what anyone else feels like, if you can't feel how someone feels, then you're that's basically the end game for that. So for me, my work feels political in that I am very interested in expressing my own vulnerability in my own work, and I'm exp- interested in like sort of sharing that. And I think that that is like the political gesture I'm interested in making. Do you feel any that it, Do you feel that it could be kind of a correction in that it's a challenge for us artists? A correction from? As far as society's concerned, so that it's a chance for art to expand. It's a chance for art to not go down necessarily that road, but to find new pathways. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. I mean, just thinking like, you know, changing the negative to a positive. It's possible. I mean, I definitely look at a lot of political art from the 60s, and I think it's really bad. So, um, right. you know, you look at sort of anti-Vietnam art, and yeah, there's some of it's cool, but most of it's like... I mean, yeah, like Bob Dylan's really good, and you know, clearly, of its it's both. I think really good art will be both inherently of its time and and, and also timeless. And I, I don't think that, but the process of creating it could be cathartic for a for a generation or for the collective, I guess. Yeah, yeah, no, totally. I mean, I just think that like Donald Trump sucks is an easy right. thing to say, right? And it's not sophisticated and it's not creative, but yeah, you know, perhaps it can be generative. Exactly, that's what I was getting at. But it feels like everything is suddenly through the filter of all that, and I find it to be very interesting and strange and, yeah, a little tiresome. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. All right, next subject. <laughs> I mean, aren't you tired of it? Can this be over now? <laughs> Can this be over? <laughs> oh, Can we snap out of the bizarro world? Oh, God. Let's take a quick break. At classicalchops.org, our educational media-based activities bring classical music into the lives of children, adults, and young professionals. Our archived interview series can be accessed on YouTube and features in-depth interviews with some of classical music's greatest luminaries, including composer Morton Lauritsen, cellist Elisa Wallerstein, violinist Midori, and composer Nico Mulek. And now back to the interview. So I wanted to talk to you, since you have been a Pulitzer Prize uh, finalist, I wanted to talk to you about 2018's Pulitzer Prize and um, and the finalist. And what what do you think about Kendrick Lamar winning? You know, finally someone asked me. I mean, I know, right? <laughs> uh, I found it kind of amazing how every reaction seemed vitriolic. It's like a little bit struck me as like the OJ verdict or something where like, you know, Everyone like like there's some like old like Chris Rock bit where he was like he's like why were black people so excited about OJ like did we get money and like that's kind of like my reaction to the Kendrick thing where people are either like oh my god classical music is over or like <laughs> oh my god finally this guy's got this thing and it's just sort of like I, I feel a little nonplussed about it it's like I'm like I, I like Kendrick Lamar he's not my favorite rapper um, I think there's kind of a consensus that To Pimp a Butterfly is a more interesting album right. Uh, uh, I think he's a really brilliant rapper and he, his, his words are amazing. It's actually like, and you know, um, musically, I think there are a lot of hip hop artists that I think are more interesting. Um, so as, as always, I'm sort of ambivalent about who won the Pulitzer Prize, which is, I was like, oh cool. I'd feel this way every year. Was your phone just blowing up the day of that? <laughs> I mean, like I, I actually, how PG is how? What's the what's the obscenity rating on this? Oh plug? no! <laughs> There's like I think uh, Will Robin uh, is like a music writer had like screenshotted like like my like holy fuck tweet <laughs> <laughs> that I just like, saw her reacting that day. <laughs> they sort of saved for posterity. Uh, yeah, that was crazy, and I and I think the thing is like that was sort of the beginning of you know, and and now it almost feels sort of normal because like now all my friends are Pulitzer Prize finalists, <laughs> like, uh, which is like lucky because I happen to have really amazingly brilliantly talented friends since in the last few years. You know, Andrew Norman, um, Ted Hearn, Timo Andrus, uh, you know, have all been Kate Soper, have all been shortlisted for the Pulitzer, and I'm these are all people who I think are such amazing composers and also friends and colleagues. Uh, 
But yeah, I feel like that was also the time, you know, maybe around when it was Andrew was the first one and then sort of me that there was like, and Caroline, of course, like there was a shift in the prize away from uh, people who were, you know, senior, more senior and, you know, right. classical composers. And um, Well, I, would, I, don't know, I hope this isn't controversial to say, but do you think there's been a shift to where the finalists are actually the winners and then the winner is kind of the identitarian... You know what I'm saying? I'm the term identitarian is very loaded. It's like a French right wing uh, term. So, I'm, but uh, I don't know. It's it's always you know it's you know I I, I you know it was interesting. I, I um uh, became acquainted with the playwright Annie Baker uh, this past summer. We were at McDowell together. She's a brilliant, awesome person. Uh, very kind. And she was on the panel um, when Lynn Nottage had won the uh, Pulitzer. And you know she was just talking about how you know a lot of it seems it's a, it, everyone who seems to be on these panels have a lot of different uh, things they're trying to accomplish. And, you know, she was talking about, she's like, well, there's things I definitely didn't want to win. And we were all kind of, like, happy with Lynn Nottage's play, so. Um, but on the flip side, there's a possibility that, and more than a possibility, that Kendrick's album is literally the most creative thing that was looked at that year. Yeah, no, it's great. It's, it's, he's, he's, he's great. I'm totally, I'm totally chill about the whole thing. <laughs> I just like, I don't understand what the big deal was in a weird way. Uh, I like it more than many, I like it more than, uh, oh God, who can I like comfortably make fun of <laughs> on a podcast? Oh God, tread <laughs> carefully. Gail Kubik. <laughs> no one's going to bat for Gail Kubik <laughs> in 1960 or something. Uh, you know, like, I, it's, it's, it's just, you know, it's like anything else. I just, it seemed, it seemed, the only, you know, the only, and I, I think every composer of concert music is probably a little bit like, well, you know, there aren't that many things for us, and you know, it was a thing that holds a lot. But then again, like, That's, look how much, look, look how much press the finalists got this year because, right, exactly. So I, it, it just seems totally fine to me. Like I wish I had a stronger opinion about this, and is as long as there's a chance for. And the other thing is, like, honestly, like, who cares about classical music? Who cares about contemporary composers? Like, nobody. Like, and so the idea that a thing wherein our field is um, integrated better with other parts of the field strikes me as, like, vital and necessary and really important. So that's so cool on some level that, like, suddenly, like, my friend Ted is, like, being mentioned with Kendrick Lamar. And, like, to me, that is a more organic synergy than, like, me having to connect to Brahms, you know, and like, <laughs> like what, like where, like where is the connective tissue stronger? And actually, I think the latter would probably be a stronger connective tissue. It's like a like we need to make an art that is contemporary and vital and of this, you know, and and you know, it's you know, if not of the moment, but like of you know, I think, and this is a lot of why. Just to circle back on like my connections to visual art and literature is that like I'm trying to be in in, in dialogue with the culture that we're in right now. And I naturally am a curious person who reads and sees art. And like, so therefore like, it's just going to be a natural organic dialogue. And I think that that is what the Pulitzer committee was really going for. It was like, you know, drawing connections that are there already. Right. Right. Well, let's talk about those connections in your own work. Speaking of Brahms, so you have mm-hmm. a violin sonata. Mm-hmm. So how important is it? I mean, I've noticed a lot of, I think what we're talking about kind of is this rise of just irreverence to the, pantheons of the past yeah it's not even a reverence it's just sort of like it's one thing amongst many right one dimension i guess yeah and i yeah so i I mean i feel very in dialogue with mozart i don't feel in dialogue particularly with Brahms. i feel Mm -hmm. very in dialogue with bach i don't feel particularly in dialogue with tchaikovsky i don't know (laughs) i have a concert with tchaikovsky this podcast (laughs) is ended (laughs) (laughs) no i kind of like tchaikovsky actually there's like a great stravinsky defensive tchaikovsky article that i really love um i feel very in dialogue with stravinsky um i don't feel in dialogue with schoenberg so it's it's you know it's just you know it's that's and that's sort of you know in the same way and then you just extend that logic out to different kinds of genres of music and different kinds of literature now can you pinpoint exactly why on some of these composers that um, I feel like I'm always drawn to music that is somehow restrained or like there's a mixture of expressivity and restraint. And so, you know, obviously naturally that's like Mozart, Stravinsky. Um, I, you know, I, and this is, I was trying to think about, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I, I, I'm drawn to music with effective power as well. And that to me is like a huge aspect of, um, what music can do. And I've always just, you know, so I think that. The ability to connect to other things like literature and uh, visual art is the ability to draw a greater and deeper emotional resonance out of a out of a uh, out of a listener. And you know, it's funny because like 
people may, it was such a funny, I had a concert uh, just a couple of days ago in Chicago with the Chicago Symphony. Um, they had this fabulous principal percussionist named Cynthia Yeh, and she played uh, a piece of mine called Memory Palace for percussion electronics. And that piece is like very programmatic and it has like very specific program. And, uh, you know, the, this guy walks out and it was done in the Art Institute of Chicago and it was done in this stock ticker room and he was like a former stock trader. And, you know, I have this whole story about this piece and there's all these references in it that are very specific. And he's like, I was, to me, it was like a day, day of trading stocks. And I was like, okay, cool, awesome. You know, like, <laughs> like fine, you know. And so, so that's, you know. You could have put the ticker tape in there. Yeah. I was like, he's like, sometimes it was exciting, like trading stocks. And I'm like, that's great. You know, man, like that's, you know, good for you. I'm, I'm really glad you enjoyed that, you know, and that's, but, you know, to me, you just plant the seeds of, of reference. And I think that it can, right. you can go a long way. And let it go and see. Yeah. Now, Memory Palace is one of my favorite favorite work. So it was 2012. Mm -hmm. And speaking of atmosphere, so through in Memory Palace, you kind of take us on this journey through through um, sonorities, mm -hmm. through, from the guitar to this, uh, quote unquote, marimba. Yeah, yeah. Right? To chimes and then bottles, beer mm -hmm. bottles. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about this and how the electronics are integrated. Sure. It was, uh, Memory Palace was originally commissioned by uh, um a guy named Owen Weaver, and then a bunch of other people joined the consortium, and uh, we sort of got a grant for me to write this piece. And a big part of the project was that no one owned all the same instruments, so to make it sort of work out was that all the instruments had just had to be constructed. Uh, and that was a really exciting thing to me because it sort of took all the, you know, the you know I'm a pianist by training and uh, composed primarily that way, and it took the ground out beneath my feet and it really forced me to think about writing music in a totally different way. So, you know, I, like recorded all these samples of him playing all these found objects and, you know, had to run it through my computer and pitch shift it all and sort of, like, I really had to build the piece in a totally different way. And, and you know, I always talk to him when I talk to young composers, I talk about how the process that you write by is going to be, like, 50% of the results. So if you can find a way to generate an interesting process to compose, then the result will inherently be interesting because you composed it differently. The intent is clear. Yeah, and so the, the sort of as I was writing the piece, and it, it was written over a fairly long period of time, I think it was like five or six months, uh, because, you know, everything had to be from start, you know, like the guitar is originally plucking inside a piano that I was doing, and I'm like, well, not everyone has a piano, so maybe, I'm like, oh, there's actually only six pitches in this piece, so what if we restring a guitar in a weird way? And uh, it kind of came to me one day, I remember it's sort of like on the subway or something, and... Um, the piece kind of just came little by little. I mean, then I remembered how I had, in college, I had strung, I had done, I had made an octave of uh, beer bottles in different pitches. And, you know, it was like, I think it was like in the uh, languorous hang, haze of a hangover that I <laughs> sort of figured this all out because we had 50 beer bottles lying around our apartment. And so, you know, it really came out of, and, 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 and it sort of came out of a, a thing that I try to do in my work, which is to be really personal. And because I, you know, the other thing is I think is, Ultimately, you are you're you are limited by in every way except the fact that you're you, and that sounds like almost like a little like you know, Richard Simmonsy, <laughs> but it's like, but it's true. You know, you are like I am not. No one will be the smartest or most talented or whatever person, but they will be the most themselves. And I think to have a tremendous amount of awareness of how to utilize that fact is you know, I, um, you know, and so I'm like, oh, I'm the only person I know who like has made an octave of beer bottles and. And, you know, and so that's sort of how the piece came about. And um, and then you sampled those sounds, or is it live processed? Uh, there, it, is, uh, it is triggered in Max. I also had to learn Max for that uh, project, which is also why it took forever. Actually, there was a very kind of very fun thing about that concert the other day is that I realized is that my friend Sam Adams, who really great composer went to school with as well, um, had originally helped me write the Max patch for that piece. And, you know, four years later, six years later, Jesus... Um, it was just sitting on your desktop kind of thing? No, no. Six years later, Sam curated a concert at the oh, Chicago right. Symphony that had my piece on. And I'm like, oh, my God, you wrote this Max patch like five, six years ago. You helped me. <laughs> um, so the the sounds are um, actually almost all generated out of it. opens with a field recording of crickets that I had recorded in uh, uh, State Park, upstate New York. And uh, all the sounds are actually uh, resonant uh, filters applied to that recording of crickets. And so little by little, the percussionist has a foot pedal and they trigger electronic sounds that sort of support them. So there's no live processing. It's all uh, it's all pre-recorded. But it was sort of, I built the soundtrack and I worked backwards because another thing I wanted to do is like, you know, in a 20-odd minute percussion piece, it would be both impractical and unmusical to sort of be stuck to a click track or a soundtrack. And so therefore the fact that they can sort of guide the electronics to follow them in a performance was really, I think was and is a much more interesting way to make music.
And then the per- percussionist part is fully notated? Or the percussionist it, part is fully notated. There's some natural... Um, uh, there's some natural uh, indeterminacies that result of the notation. So, you know, how your hands intertwine, you know, you're playing these rhythms and just by the result of the way people play these patterns, there'll be interferences and there's some, in, there's some which are like, just like, there was one, you know, um, so Ian Rosenbaum, who is like one of my core collaborators, wound up being the, one of the big people who's toured this piece around and he's played, he's almost definitely played it more than anyone else really helped me in sort of some of the notations. Some of because there was one movement, the Bells movement, which was like this incredibly complicated notational system I'd figured out with like five against four against three against two against you know, seven rhythm <laughs> thing. And he's like, okay, how about we just do half of that and the other half you can kind of like let the percussionist sort of like improvise. And so the left hand is very specifically notated and the right hand is like a kind of indeterminate notation. So yeah, and, and he's like, this piece just went from like taking a month to learn to taking a day to learn. And it sounds almost, and he's like, I think, you know, and this is, you know, I, and I'm such a believer in collaboration and uh, in composing. And so, and Ian is, you know, I, there's probably like seven people on my, sort of my iPhone where I'm texting like once a week about something or other. And Ian, I think, sent me record, two recordings. And he's like, if you can tell the difference between these two, then I will learn the hard version. And when one was like kind of improvised and one was the precisely notated one. And he's, and I was like, this is not worth it. Because, you know, I think a composer has to be really respectful of the labor of a performer. Of course. And uh, I'm like, dude, this is not worth a month. And the kind of intuition that comes with the collaborative collaborative process. Absolutely, and, and that's such a lucky thing to have people. I mean, you, I think you need to have these people you really trust. You right. know, and well, hasn't this been the entire history of music? Mm-hmm. And it's just, I think, lately, well, now it's that pretty, everything's documentable, right? And that people pretty, are afraid to do that. It's a pretty rare phenomenon that uh, performers, um, composers, are not performers. You know, that's a very 20th century phenomenon right. as it is. So, right. uh, in that regard. You know, I think we composers, as in me, not you, uh, as a composer performer, uh, sort of really need to have people we can trust to sort of help us with things like that. Right. And then it's always kind of, you're always on for data collection. Right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about Invisible Cities. Sure. And this is a opera you collaborated with the industry. Mm-hmm. And it's based on a tell. Italo Calvino's um, novel. Mm-hmm. Tell me a little bit about putting this together, about the mobile opera. I guess not mobile opera, but the headphone opera. Sure, yeah. I mean, it was, uh, and, and you know, and something I haven't talked about a lot, but it is an ongoing part of all my relationship is my relationship with technology, which I think has become a really huge part of how I compose and how I have composed and how I did compose that opera in particular. Um, But the sort of history of it was that I had sort of started writing this work, and it was sort of really on spec. And one of the first people to take any interest in this thing when I was a grad student at Yale was Yuval Sharon, who was at the time the head of the um, the New York City Opera Vox Festival. And they wrote, uh, they, they selected the first couple of scenes for a performance with City Opera, which were kind of disastrous. <laughs> it was fine. It was like the performance was not great. It was my, I was so young. I was like 24. What was the space that it was done in? It was done, and it was just a concert reading. So oh, okay. it was done at, this, at NYU where they had this, uh, the Skirball Center um, okay. space in the city. It's not a particularly interesting venue, but um, it was just a, it was, the performance was bad. It was like the first time I'd had a major performance, uh, and, you know, outside of an academic setting. And, you know, I, you know, it got this like terrible review in the Times. The whole concert just got completely lambasted. I was just sort of devastated. But, you know, Yuval was really behind it. And, you know, it was early. It was a workshop. I mean, that's what these things are. And unfortunately, like, um, I think there's a weird... Um, you know, I think it's very hard to get funding to do these kinds of things without a public presentation aspect. Then you get a public presentation, you get press. And um, anyway, uh, I was pretty devastated by that. But, you know, Yuval was so supportive and really wanted me to keep going on it. And I did. And I went up re- basically running the whole thing when I was in grad school. And then several years later, he called me and he's like, so what, what's happened with this Invisible Cities piece? And I'm like, well, you know, we've done some concert performances of it. It hasn't had a really proper full premiere yet. And he's like, well, since then, I've moved to L.A., and I've started this opera company, and I and he was sort of like, he was very, it's really funny, because, you know, I talked to him about this recently, and he was, like, so nervous about this phone call, and I was like, because he was like, what if we just did this piece in, in headphones in a train station? I was like, cool! <laughs> <laughs> Back yeah. on. No, I was, like, super into it, because, you know, I, 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 I'm, like, a total, like, I, you know, I, I a big part of, um, how I looked at my work present in terms of recording form is very close to how it's 
the headphones context. And I, I, I love working in a recording studio and making all sorts of impossible things that you wouldn't be able to make in a concert performance, you know. Um, and so, you know, I, I was like, oh, my God, I'm going to be able to make basically a studio album live with this. And it was already, you know, the piece was already amplified and it already had mobile elements and movement around the space. So it was just was so organic that it, I was like, let's just do this. And, you know, the thing is, like, it felt very much like a piece that didn't belong on stage. It was a piece that b- belonged in some kind of installation context. And it was just, so that was, you know, I like I jumped on it and I was like, of course. And so, you know, I flew out and we sort of started talking about it and, you know, and the whole thing was so crazy. And like, <laughs> you know, all the credit goes to Yuval for the logistics of making this piece happen. And it was, but, you know, it was it was amazing and it felt like, one of these great collaborations where I feel it just sort of everyone did their thing and everything kind of worked out. And, and they, it, all, it did work. Yeah. To give some context, the um, the opera was performed in Union Station, a train station downtown L.A., and passengers getting off of trains just walking through the station. Yeah, while the audience were confronted. Had, yeah. Immediately being a part of the uh, of the opera. Yeah, and the uh, the audience themselves had headphones who could hear singers and performers live. So it was, it is a fully scored, fully notated work, um, and you saw only part of it at any time. Right, and you could kind of choose you heard your own. Thing. Yeah, exactly. Path and it, uh, so you're you're going to be um, collaborating with Yuval in the industry again? No. Oh. No, no immediate plans. Okay, we'll cut that out. Yeah. <laughs> I thought this was uh, in a grove. No, no. It, it doesn't. Ha- no, uh, it was a woman named Mary Birnbaum is directing. Oh. It doesn't oh. doesn't have a premiere set yet. Well, there you go. <laughs> it's very much in progress. <laughs> in pro- oh, in progress. Okay. See, for me, your work recovering was similar to Memory Palace in the the atmosphere and the timbre. Yeah, they were written around the same time. Right. So, yeah, that was like my my extremely stripped down phase of composition. But I love the dialogue then came into yeah. play with, yeah. with the different sonorities. Mm-hmm. So tell me a little bit about your upcoming album with Wild Up and Chris Roundtree. Uh, so this is, you know, God, making an album apparently takes forever and costs a ton of money. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Weird, right? Yeah, make sure our listeners know that. <laughs> yeah, oh my God, it's such a nightmare. Who, who, you know, it's, just, um, so Chris Roundtree and I, who's an, uh, the artistic director and conductor of Wild Up, Chamber Orchestra here in LA, have been sort of talking about making, doing some kind of project for a while, and I approached him about doing this album, because I had had a large, large song cycle I had basically had had three commissions in a row that had almost identical instrumental ensembles, which were all 10 to 14 player chamber orchestras. Um, and there were different song cycles that were all composed for it. So then I was like, Chris, what if Wild Up was the band for this whole album? You know, and so, so the um, first piece on the album was called The Pieces of Fall to Earth. It was commissioned by the LA Phil, I think, back in 2014. Um, it was premiered that year. And then I had another commission for... Um, uh, for a singer named Theo Blackman, who is a jazz singer who does, who has a big foot in new music. So he sings with Meredith Monk and he sings a lot of contemporary music, but it's a sort of beautiful, um, very pure voice. And then, and I had a commission from a, a group in Milwaukee called, uh, Present Music, who commissioned a piece for choir and the orchestra of the same size. And so I was, so basically I suggested we make that the that was that's the album that more or less we made and uh and entirely dedicated to your work entirely dedicated to my work and it will come out next year on new amsterdam records uh we were like the inks the inks wet on this one because it's been a long process of you know making the kind of because you because no obviously no one's paying for records anymore um either in the purchasing process or the funding process so you know we you know we had a bunch of supporters help sort of fund the whole thing and wild up put a bunch of money in and uh, so you kind of have to finish the album and then sort of pitch it around. And after pitching it around, you know, New Amsterdam took an interest and they're a really great label based in New York. And we will put it out next year and there'll be a release party in New York, a release party in L.A. Um, but it was sort of, you know, the, the core sort of the album is new song cycles with a large ensemble. One is with a soprano named Lindsay Kesselman, one's with Theo, and one is a choir from New York. Uh, just so, and all with Chris and Wild Up at the core of you know, and and I think that Wild Up has a really distinct sound. You know, they're not really like a chamber orchestra. They're like these fourteen people. And the really awesome thing about it too is that many of these people were involved in Visible Cities, both in the recording of that album, and so this is definitely gonna be my second album. Um, uh, you can just like see like a field of money on fire. <laughs> 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 so much money. Um, uh, and. 
you know, it was, and this album was also recorded by Nick Tip, who is an engineer based in LA, who I worked with quite a bit. He worked on Invisible Cities. He recorded the first Invisible Cities album, and um, so Nick is a really great collaborator of mine. And he too, you know, just talking about these lines between pop and classical and hip hop is, you know, we are trying to um, make an album that sounds more like a pop album than a classical album. It's not, you know, you know, like you ever put on these like Deutsche Grammophone albums from the seventies and they're like so quiet and they're so loud and there's no dynamic. The dynamic is insane. And so, you know, we recorded it in a way and, and Nick is doing all sorts of crazy stuff on it that, you know, like really moves away from a very classical sound and it's very present and, you know, it's, it's, it's a, it's a funny reality because, you know, when you're mixing a record, you have to like, you know, listen on your expensive headphones and then you have to put on a pair of iPhone earbuds and then you listen out of your internal laptop speakers and you're sort of like in, to find, a, you know, cause a lot of classical albums don't work that way, but you, you have to live in a world where you realize that like, okay, like 80% of, or 50% or whatever percentage of the public is going to listen to your album this way. So it's like, do you want to engage that audience or not? And I do. So we're trying to make something that sort of sounds good in all these contexts. When And the release date for that is? Uh, I don't know if they have a month, but it'll probably be in the summer of 2019. Um, Congratulations. Thank you, yeah. It's like a three-year process from recording to release, so it's been... Tell me about this process of bringing in artistic creation or endeavor to fruition, especially with the financial constraints this day and age how is it how does that work you know you know something i would love to just do <laughs> would be to like go back to like school and just sort of you know I, unfortunately i don't know if you can teach the business of music in a real way in school you, know, you must be able to partially but it's like you know i want to like go find like chris in 2010 and be like okay so your life's gonna be like 40 percent composing 30% composing and like 60 to 70% emails and like, you know, like <laughs> maybe higher. <laughs> yeah. Like emails, like meeting people, you know, getting, you know, personal relationships, uh, you know, phone conversations, you know, even on the way over here, we were, I was just trying to, we were just trying to, I was trying to work on a new project and, uh, you know, uh, and, and, you know, and how do you make an album? How do you know how to do all this stuff? It's just none of it is taught in school, right? Like, right, right. Maybe you might have like one class or something, but it's like, and actually, that was to me one of the, the one of the truly lucky things I, I think is in going to Yale was that I studied with, um, you know, along with uh, Martin Bresnik and David Lang and Chris Theofanidis, and all those people have you know professional careers as composers and it's not that they're that they're well known that is useful as much as that they have lived lives making music professionally and they're not just academics so they know what it they and you know and so that was a thing i was really lucky to learn from them is just literally okay you're gonna have to do all this stuff and you know this is going to be your life and it's going to be not one thing and i think that that was a very very lucky break for me more than getting to go to a prestigious school or going to you know it's just like because i think a lot of people go to schools Composers go to schools where they study with someone who perhaps doesn't really have as much of a professional career and they're more academic, which is fine uh, in terms of, but it just is like you might not know what it's like in the real world as a result. Or might not. You probably just, you probably don't. And then you, off and, yeah, and you see this world and like composers go to school and they get doctorates and they go out and, you know, teach and that's sort of, that's sort of seen as the path. And that's like, well, first of all, that path is probably going away. If not, you know, it's certainly, it's certainly only going to be possible for a very select few in that group because there aren't that many jobs and um so then it's like you know i was sort of you know talking to a young composer that night and i was saying to her she's like well you know I, i'm going to get a doctorate and then i need to teach to make money and i'm like you know there are a lot of ways to make money you know like when i got out of school i like what did i do i worked as an engraver i uh you know recorded concerts for people i did like live sound gigs i taught piano lessons and in a sense that was cool because it allowed me the time to compose and you know, I think it's very hard for a young composer to get a full-time teaching job. That's a lot. It's a full-time teaching job. Like, they don't pay you a full salary to, like, goof off and teach half a class. It's right. a, a very hard job to be a professor. Well, these jobs that you did also expanded your skill set in music. Exactly. And I think that there's so many ways to be a composer. And, um, you know, I, I wish that that was sort of like, maybe maybe you just can't teach it. I don't know. Uh, well, academia doesn't necessarily grant that permission no because it also needs to be self-serving in its own sort of like iteration it's like well why you know i I was sort of amusing with a friend the other day uh like what if they just got rid of phds in music and just gave you five years of like funding it's like here's like oh i mean on some level with that absolutely like what if you're just like let's not pretend that you have to write a dissertation because like no one cares like no one cares about your composer dissertation 
what if we just gave people like a bunch of money and let you know who we think are really promising and gave them opportunities to compose mentor them yeah like lessons are very useful obviously and then like stop pretending that this like you know this this thing is any more than you know just a sort of industry for academics but like what if doctorates were just like five-year residencies where you got funding and you could compose and that would probably make people better composers than making them write dissertations and stuff like that Absolutely. I have a friend teaching, just started teaching over the Fashion Institute of Design and Merchandising. And I'm thinking, why isn't this in the music department? Oh, yeah. And switch out oral skills, switch out theory oh, or one. Like, I mean, how many people don't know how to use a microphone? How many compo- young people? Like, you know, you. like, but not just perform, like, how many performers? Absolutely. Couldn't do a basic recording setup? Absolutely. And that's crazy to me. I mean, like, what if, you know, instead of like. But you can take a dictation, you can do some rhythmic yeah, tapping no, on your knee. It strikes me as insane that basic technology skills are not part of music. Uh, right, right. I agree. So the merchandising, the tech, engineering. Yeah, po- you know, publishing, uh, you know, all of this stuff seems, I mean, <laughs> your training is important, but I think maybe my fugue class could have been swapped out for <laughs> an undergrad. <laughs> for, <laughs> for a few things. Yeah. Just a few things. Yeah, I mean, fugue, fugue class was great. <laughs> Thank you, Walter Hilsa at the Manhattan School of Music for that semester of fugue class, but maybe we should have learned how to make a website. Well, I think this kind of comes back to what we were talking about, the Pulitzer. Things are changing. We are in a paradigm shift. But oh, yeah. not everything's going to change. Yeah, I'm kind of curious what's going to happen at the same time. It's like very, you know, what is is that like, uh, may you live in exciting times or may you live in interesting times? It's like that curse. We definitely do. Yeah. Well, I think we know what's going to happen is that things are going to start falling by the wayside. Like the world? (laughs) (laughs) That, no. (laughs) No, I think the younger generation might realize at a certain point they don't need academia. Yeah, I just, you know, and, and the other thing is that, you know, and this is sort of, you know, I think there was some like Philip Glass thing where he was like, just make sure you get paid as a composer. And it can be like 50 bucks or it can be like 10 bucks or it can be like a drink. But just somehow the idea that something's com- exchanged, to, to something, the compo- the com- the music, new compositions are treated as something of value, of worth. And right. then I think that that right. is really important and sort of. Honestly, you know, and the other thing about going to Yale was that I happened to be at Yale with just an extraordinary group of composers. Who, um, you know, I was in school with Andrew Norman. I was in school with Ted Hearn. I was in school with Tim O'Andrews, John Jacob Cooper, Rob Honstein. All these people came in right at the same time as me. And uh, I learned so much from them about how, you know, I'm so lucky that I'm, that I just, the navigation of this aspect of the field is literally because these great friends of mine helped me out and, you know, sort of helped guide me in the right direction because, yeah, since it's not taught in school. And that's like, you know, I think that that is something that is true of the next, you know, people, is that I feel like composers were once fiercely in competition with one another. And now I think there's a realization that's like, there's not really a competition going on here. It's like, if maybe your friend gets something, then like the odds of you getting it in the future are are now higher because, you know, you as a result have a relationship with that group. And, you know exactly. Well, this is this is a positive, obviously. Yeah, of academia is that you're it's a place bringing all of these wonderful, like-minded people together. But I feel like back in the day there was like a competition or something. Oh, like, definite, like literal. Yeah, whether whether aesthetic or just interpersonal, the idea that there was only one person was going to make it seems so quaint and sort of like. Well, that's good to hear that from a composer that. I mean, don't get me wrong. Composers are all terrible, petty people. (laughs) 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 We're all personally slighted by the smallest, smallest imagined slight. But, you know, at least, you know, you have these people who are, you know, are your friends and colleagues and your collaborators. You're collaborators and you're helping one another. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that was a big part of how Sleeping Giant, our our collective of composers who have made up of people who I just mentioned, came to be. It sort of were like... Well, why don't we just all work together? Why don't we do concerts? Why don't we do pieces together? And it sort of, you know, has surely helped all of us, you know, in, in our years. So tell me a little bit about Sleeping Giant. Sleeping Giant, who's currently sleeping at the moment. Because <laughs> I don't think any, I don't think, I don't, I think we're sort of, I'd say we're in, uh, we're in, hibernating. Tra- we're transitioning, I'd say. Um, that's slightly loaded. Word, um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I think we're trying to figure out, and 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 you know, it's funny. This is, I mean, I might as well just talk about this because it's it, it's an, it's an interesting moment, you know, in classical music, and uh, obviously representation is a huge issue right now in our field, and how you know, and we are a group of six white men, and uh, we're a group of six white men because we were in school together and basically all male composition program, you know, and we met that way, and we started doing concerts, and I think 
we are now reckoning with that identity of how this group is really going to exist in this world. Because I think the last thing any of us want to do is sort of be like these like representatives of the patriarchy. I think we want to, build, you know, and so we've done quite a few projects together over the years. And, uh, you know, we were composers in residence with the Albany Symphony. We wrote a evening length piece for uh, Eighth Blackbird. We wrote a evening length piece for the cellist Ashley Bathgate, and we just sort of recorded it. We recorded that as an album just now, and that'll come out also next year, I think. Uh, Nick Tip also recorded that. You know, we keep it very close. And, um, and now you're just, having some kind of inner struggle with well, the we Well, so we just did a project. Well, I think we're trying to bring, sort of figure out, we literally don't know, um, how to make the group a little more inclusive. And so a big part of this has been sort of starting to work with other composers. And so every project is different. Um, two-thirds of us were just involved in a project uh, with a group called Third, Third Angle New Music in Portland, and they commissioned a series of um, new arrangements of Elliot Smith songs. So four of the six members of Sleeping Giant were involved in that. And then we also worked with uh, a composer named L.J. White and uh, another friend of mine, Scott Wolschlager. And so that was a... Um, that was cool because we sort of brought new composers into the fold. And I think that's sort of, I think I suspect how the group will exist in the future was to make sure that we're sort of like blending our core personal relationships that are very close with, a, you know, a, a more diverse group of composers, collaborators. Uh, and so, yeah, I think we're kind of figuring out how the, the group will work in the future. But I think it's a group based on uh, both aesthetic kinship, but even more so personal friendship and, uh, you know, um, I think we all really, our music is all very different, but we all, so there's a sort of a core thing that seems to keep us all together. It seems like that core is this essence of just openness. Yeah, I think, I think it definitely, cause I don't think, I mean. An awareness. Yeah. And, and also I think honestly, just, you know, so much, you know, I mean, you know, Tim Andrus is a composer who I talk to almost every day. Um, you know, we live together. He's a very close friend of mine. And literally, you know, when we were writing our eighth Blackbird piece, I was just like texting him screenshots of scores. Like, oh, I have this idea. And he was texting me ideas. And so like, I think my piece seeped into, my piece seeped into his on the project and then his seeped into mine. And so, you know, that kind of, that kind of thing seems sort of anathema to the classic idea of a composer in his, his, his literally room. Uh, you know, you know, not talking to anyone. And, and, and instead, I think it sort of expands the idea of a composer into a more collaborative thing, which is kind of how music is actually made. Has been made for, what, let's just say eternity? Yeah, yeah. And sort of, you know, you, you know, and I really try, you know, I've, I don't do this in all my pieces, but I do actually try really hard to uh, recognize people in my scores. So if anyone is involved in the collaboration process of writing it, I always try to like have like this, you know, this, this the invaluable contribution of these people in the workshop was really important and so they're always if possible enumerated somewhere in the score because it's a myth that composers are just doing stuff by themselves yeah and if they are they're probably not creating anything that one wants to hear no this, no I, i'm with you on this correspondence yeah i know oh totally especially uh, the 19th century grab any sonata basically and trace it right back to where it came from and continue it on. Yeah, no, I love that. I love that these composers were having dialogues with not only the form, but with one another. Yeah, yeah. And the audience and other composers got the memo. Yeah, yeah. Now there's, well, I don't want to go down that road, but anyways, like there's no memo and there's just an Instagram post and a piece. And it's, seems like you're, it's important to you to have that correspondence. It's just the way to, I just, I have found it's the way that I make music the best. I mean, someone, I'm, I'm sure there's some composer out there who's just like, working by themselves and making a really awesome thing. But to me, it's, it's it, <laughs> well, you know, because I think sort of, you know, just to get back to sort of the idea of, like, like for the very beginning, like sonic phenomenon and sounds, I think a big part of, you know, composing for me is listening. And, you know, I think you find what's going to happen next by listening. On a and, deeper and, level. Yeah. And like, the and, no, I know. But like, there's off, there's often, you know, to me, like, I remember like my, my teacher from college, Nils Vigeland, would always be like, write a little bit and then listen go back and then like what will happen next it will be suggested and i i really think that's the case so a lot of the times i'll you know in a collaboration that someone will be doing something and then uh you know they'll be like and it's always things so something so small i just wrote this little tiny violin piece for uh, this uh violinist named Evgeny kutik uh and there was this thing where um i uh i was showing it to a different violinist and i was uh uh she was just trying something out and then like literally she's like, oh, what if I did on this string? And I'm like, oh, what if you missed a string? And so there's like this like burialage and then like they miss a string and then so it creates all these cool rhythmic patterns. And it just like sort of like results from just like watching someone doing something and be like, try this. And so, um, 
you know, that's, that's a great example of how an idea comes out of listening and paying attention and just observing. Right. So tell me then, a lot of your music comes from a collaboration and commission. So mm-hmm. are, do you have works in your head that you just have to get out that have nothing to do with anyone? Uh, yourself? If so, they're collaborative. <laughs> um, okay. You know, or so, you'll go and find that collaboration. Uh, well, you know, I feel like most of the projects that I'm talking about doing in the future that don't have like a home yet are with some group oh, or see. performer I or... See. And, you know, um, so uh, Tim Monroe is a flutist who I have worked with quite a bit. He is a former member of Faith Blackbird. He was a member of the group when uh, uh, I wrote a piece for them. And then he struck out on his own as in a kind of chameleon-like solo career where I wrote him a solo flute and electronics piece. And now we're working on a giant, crazy, theatrical, immersive explosion.com <laughs> Uh, and which is called The Last <laughs> Message Received, and that's, um, we're not quite sure what it is yet. We're doing a first version of it. Uh, it's based on a, a, actually a Tumblr called The Last Message Received, which is um, people post their last communications with someone mm-hmm. ever. Well, so it, it, could be a, it could be a death, it could just be a breakup, it could be an end of a friendship. It, for whatever reason, if you lost contact with someone, you post your last contact with them. And so we're going to use the text from that website as sort of the, 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 the bed on which to implant a kind of memory. I mean, again, like memory plays such a huge role in my work. Um, a memory space for all these last communications and how people are trying, you know. And so it's a spatial work. Um, the first version of it's going to be done in two years uh, at Oberlin College and then uh, in St. Paul with the uh, liquid music with the St. Paul Chamber Orchestra. And we're going to, you know, assuming it all goes to plan, uh, this will happen then. And that so, like, that's something Tim and I sort of dreamed up together. And he's, you know, he's a very literary guy, and he's sort of going to run it and music direct it. And we will, yeah. So, and, and, and then I'm sort of working on this new opera, In a Grove, which is in collaboration with a librettist, Stephanie Fleischman, uh, a great friend of mine, and a director named Mary Birnbaum. And we're sort of again, like you know, so again, it's like it's it's always collaborative, and so we're sort of like hunting around for that right kind of space and the right team to sort of build that piece together, and we've sort of been doing that. At classicalchops.org, we share our vision through artist interviews, our Facebook community, our YouTube channel, and original free interactive learning activities for both classroom and family use. Our dynamic free educational modules teach kids about opera chamber music, and the symphony orchestra. Materials can be downloaded and explored from our website, classicalchops.org. How do you hear music? What do you mean? Does it, well, we were talking so much about atmosphere, and when music comes to you, what, what, is, what is instigating it? Is it a sound? Is it it's often, it's often It's often like physical, actually, you know, so sort of like, you know, come up with some idea that will be... Uh, I mean, it really depends, uh, you know. Um, or does the atmosphere ever present itself to you? No, very. it's very rare that that happens. It's usually like some gesture or notes or some figuration or something that will generate the first idea. And then, you know, I mean, I sort of, uh, I have a, you know, a violin in my house for this last thing I literally just wrote. Um, and, and I think it was just like a little, well, I just wrote a violin concerto, so <laughs> too, so that, thinking about how that came about, that was a piece where I had just written this little tiny melody down on a piece of paper years and years and years ago, and that was the instigator of the whole thing, and so sort of like, a, you know, it's a set, it's a seven movement concerto that I wrote for Jenny Coe in the Detroit Symphony, and this little melody, it's like very simple folk-like melody, sort of served as the germinal seed and it gets presented in the first movement in a very stretched out way where she's playing the whole thing as these long whole notes and then it comes back again in the third movement it's a little more together and then it comes back in the fifth movement as a cadenza and then finally at the very end she plays just like uh, all pizzicato just like six notes in the final movement or like ten notes in the final movement and so um, uh, yeah in that case it was you know it's always a very simple idea for me that then fans out into something more complicated right and then you create a process around it yeah, exactly. And you sort of listen to the thing that you made and you find a form for it and you find a structure. But there are times when the process presents itself and you go looking for the for the pitch and the Not really. No? Pretty rarely. It's pretty rare. You know, or like I wrote this little violin piece just now and I wrote it literally by playing the violin. So I don't really play the violin, but I played it enough to come up with ideas. And uh, that's kind of how I wrote uh, my violin sonata too. And uh, yeah, most things I write have like a kind of really physical impulse of just you know sound and um or like playing something or a really simple idea and uh 
or I just wrote this percussion quartet for percussion electronics. And I think the whole thing started with just me sitting at a piano, like playing a chorale. And then from there, I'm like, oh, what if I added electronics? And it was actually the whole thing, but backwards. And so like there's these loud swells that like kind of like, and so it's always a really simple thing, which is often, I mean, like more often than that, my music tends to function as some sort of simple ideas presented and then it gets fans out or it right. becomes more elaborate and, um, and I, the and intent is kind of infused through some kind of physical action. Yeah, and I think that the other thing is like, I mean, you know, there is no common practice of music composition anymore. So I think music needs to be um, didactic formally in that it teaches you how, or like, um, it, it it has a form that teaches you how to hear it. Like there is no like sonata form, so we're not going to like, you know, because I, I mean, I don't even know if this is true, honestly. So I'm like, question everything I hear. But like, in theory, like a 19th century audience could hear sonata form, right? Definitely. Um, so, you know, if you wrote a piece, you know, or like, you know, in sort of like modern terms, like a pop song. Like, you know, you know, a chorus, is, the song's going to have a chorus and it's going to come back three times. And, you know, maybe there's a bridge. And I think most contemporary audiences can hear structure within pop music pretty easily. Um, so... Being contemporary music, being not neither of those things, uh, you know, I think we need to formally uh, think about writing music that wherein the structure of the work is sort of audible. And you know, um, my friend Sam Adams said this really beautiful thing about uh, Memory Palace the other day that was performed, and he's like, the piece remembers itself. And I think it's a big thing with my own music is music that. Uh, I, I try to create the act of remembrance within the structure of the work so that if something happens and comes back later, it's very important how it comes back because you're sort of, you know, music that has neoclassical, contemporary classical music, any music almost doesn't have reference points that uh, other musics might have. Um, you know, if you're in hip hop, you're sampling something. Uh, in classical music, you sort of don't have that. So, like, a lot of what I'm trying to do is, like, if something happens and it comes back 20 minutes later, it's really important that that's happening. And so now I'm creating a sort of internal history you know the music that has a history of its own for me it was amazing about memory palace studying your work all week was that it kept it kept coming back to me yeah the repetition will do that <laughs> right so not only is was it created through memory but it it fulfilled that well yeah and i think it's a for me a big part of it is sort of trying to create things that are memorable and i think that that you know i think Certainly, there's a... But rep- repetition's only one way into that. No, no, of course. Um, but I, I think, you know, timing it over 20 minutes very strategically seems to be an, another part of that. So tell me about your L.A. Phil uh, commission for next season. Well, the L.A. Phil doesn't know about this part yet, but according, if all goes according to plan, it would be for electronics and orchestra. Uh, and it's actually based on recordings of feedback that I took uh, out of my in- computer, internal laptop speakers. I, uh, you know, my I had some uh, feedback happening. I was like, you know, this is actually a great sound. And so I recorded it. Like It's like there is no li- lower fi recording this. I took my iPhone and I recorded the feedback screeching out of my laptop. And then I pitch shifted it down like five octaves. So it went from this screechy high thing to this kind of like more atmospheric, beautiful thing. And so... The idea will be to blend many layers of these sounds, which are now like these swirling kind of... It's actually really funny because like in a weird way, the sound almost seems to reference like Robert Fripp or something or like seven, you know, like guitar rock. Only in that like feedback is a really common object in uh, in in rock music. Uh, and so then to blend that with like the orchestra and uh, I don't know, I'm supposed to meet with them and tell them it's all soon. <laughs> but, you know, so ideally the piece will blend electronic sounds and... Uh, um, acoustic sounds and I'm sort of beginning at that and it'll premiere this coming November. Um, Roderick Cox is conducting, who I've not had the pleasure of meeting yet, but uh, he's, I think he's the assistant conductor in the Minnesota Orchestra and uh, that'll be fun because I have, I actually, I have done a piece on the subscription concert with the LA Phil before, but I've never written a piece for a subscription concert with the LA Phil. So, and... Um, Do you, you think I, you'll bring an audio sample to that meeting? Uh, yeah, I should. That's a good <laughs> idea because it sounds cool. I think they'll like it. Uh, no, and 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 so the you know, the LA Phil have been an incredible champions of my work, and I you know this will be my fourth project with them, and it's incredible. Yeah, I think when you know and and you know I think this is so rare in classical music or in contemporary music is the idea, but I think it's really important is the idea of developing artists, and it's not just like, well, that was a cool piece, cool. Hope you have a good life. It's like, right, oh, like right. let's do another one. Let's let's do another one. And I think you know you know LA is in a unique position of having the resources to do this. 
They definitely are, um, and they're using it properly. Yeah, and like this, let's celebrate this amazing fifty commission season. This is incredible. Insane. I know it's unbelievable. Uh, <laughs> like, it's, just like, it's just like you're just showing off now, guys. Yeah, totally. <laughs> well, that's L.A. Yeah, no, it's 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 a great musical place, and it's a place that's you know been such a huge part of my professional musical life. I'm so lucky to sort of have been embraced as kind of. Uh, you know, an honorary member of the LA community. And, you know, I'm here like five times a year. So I feel like it's sort of like, oh, cool. Well, you're welcome back at the podcast anytime. Awesome. So, thanks, Ron. Thank you so, so much. much Brett. I'm Brett Banducci, and you've been listening to Classical Chops Studio, the podcast from classicalchops.org. You can follow us on Facebook and YouTube. And if you haven't already, please subscribe and review us on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Thanks for listening. <laughs>